bloodying the bloodless, the crucifixion in the Gospel of John. Diane Langberg, um, leading Christian psychologist and specialist in, uh, in trauma recovery, one of the things that I've learned from, from her is that violence and abuse, all kinds of abuse, are meant to separate, to isolate, and to humiliate. But telling the stories of our trauma can open up spaces for healing. The passion narrative is precisely that. It's a one long, deeply traumatic event. An account of abuse not at the hands of God, but at the hands of the powers, at the hands of the principalities, at the hands of the empire, specifically the Roman Empire, but also the logic of domination broadly. So what follows is painful to recount. But if we are to call ourselves followers of Christ, we must remember this event. But there are a few other events I want us to remember, too. On May 25th, 2020, I'm sure that 17-year-old Darnella Frazier had no idea that she would go viral. I'm 100% sure she didn't want to, especially in the way that she did. Frazier's night sparked thousands of protests against police brutality around the world because she, on her phone, recorded a police officer slowly killing a man with his knee on his neck for more than 10 minutes. Many who watched the video were shocked. It was the first time they had witnessed anything like this. There had been videos before, incidents of police brutality before, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, Tamir Rice, but for some reason, George Floyd was different. Why? Some say it's because, well, because of the pandemic, everyone had been locked up, and white people were looking for a cause to rally around. I think it was because most, most folks hadn't witnessed a drawn-out killing of a human being before. Some of the other videos were quite quick. But this one was long, drawn out, like a lynching. And everyone, because of social media, saw it. More than 100 years ago, on May 15, 1916, a 17-year-old boy who didn't know how to read or write and was probably mentally disabled was accused of a heinous crime. He was tried in a hurried trial where the jury found him guilty. In the courtroom, which had 1,500 people crammed into a space that was only supposed to fit 500, there was a pause. According to the stenographer, they paused for a full minute and then someone yelled, get the, I won't repeat the racial slur. The mob rushed the boy, dragged him down the stairs, put a chain around his body, and hitched it to a car. Dragging him to the courthouse, they tore his clothes off, they cut his ears off, and castrated him. At the courthouse, a fire was being prepared, and when they got there, the, the mob stabbed the boy repeatedly before wrapping a chain around his neck and hoisting him up a tree. They then lowered him into the fire several times by the chain around his neck. Thousands gathered for the spectacle. Pictures like this one were taken. The boy's name was Jesse Washington. The city was Waco, Texas. Why do this grisly narration? Why start a sermon like this one with two lynchings? because this sermon is about a third. 
this, the height of the gospel of John, the height of each of the gospels, is not glorious in the way that we normally think of glory. It's a crucifixion, the likes of which we don't understand. We say Jesus died for our sins so glibly without, without truly contemplating the ridiculousness, not only of the fact that he died, but of the way that he died. So today I want us to try to heed the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because those words, though they may be familiar sounding, they're, they're foreign to much of our spirituality. After all, how often do you really think about the crucifixion? Like really, think about the crucifixion beyond the understanding that Jesus died for you. I know I didn't often until these last few weeks. And, 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 and in that meditation, I found this to be true. Fleming Rutledge is right in saying this, that it is in the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed. Since the resurrection is God's mighty transhistorical yes to the historically crucified Christ, we can assert that the crucifixion is the most important historical event that has ever happened. Strong words. And words that I believe are deeply true, but we will not know that until we embrace the scandal. One more note before we actually walk with Jesus to his death. Each of the Gospels hide, in some regard, the gruesomeness of the crucifixion. John perhaps hides it the most, as Jesus appears to be in charge the whole way, but, but we're only going to get the power of that particular portrayal if we understand how bad crucifixion is. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel writers didn't omit detail because they were squeamish. The Bible has a lot of gruesome stuff in it. No, most likely they omitted details because their audience would have known what crucifixion was and what its purpose was. We have a distance from it. And writer Susan Sontag summed us up pretty nicely when she reflected on her own life living with cancer. She said, it's not suffering as such that is most deeply feared, but suffering that degrades. That's our fear, not just, not just pain, not just I stubbed my toe pain, but pain that leaves us helpless, pain that leaves us exposed, pain that leaves us vulnerable. And that's the pain that Jesus experienced to the uttermost. So we have some learning to do. We have to, we're going to have to bloody what, what appears in our minds as somewhat bloodless. Verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. In that phrase, so they took charge of him, we're told that this is actually the pre-crucifixion scourging. So we, we experienced a scourging last week when we talked about John 19, 1-16. But this one, this one's the bad one. This is the one where the soldiers beat the condemned until they got tired. Sometimes the condemned would not survive. But Jesus did, and he had a little more work to do. He had to carry that crossbeam what little way he could on a back where his flesh was likely flayed to the point that you could see bone. And when they actually nailed him through his wrists because the hands can't support the weight of the human body, they put him in the middle. One of the many moves throughout the crucifixion to focus the eyes of onlookers. Because when you, look up, when you look up at the hill and you look at those who have been lifted up for you to ridicule, your eyes are drawn to the middle, to Jesus. 
Because crucifixion, like lynching, was about the shame and about the spectacle. And this is pressed in verses 19 to 20. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Why do something like this? Luther Holbert and an unnamed black woman were lynched in Doddsville, Mississippi in 1904. The lynchers took them to the property of a black church, cut their fingers and toes off, distributing them to the crowd as souvenirs before torturing them with a corkscrew, burning her alive in front of him, and then killing him. Why do this on the grounds of a black church? To remind the entire black community of that town that this is what happens when you get out of line. White supremacy is a bloody god to appease. And when Pilate put this sign on the top of Jesus' cross, he's flexing the power of the empire, not only over Jesus, but over the religious leaders and over all of the Jewish people. The, the religious leaders protested. They said, if, maybe that sign should just say, Jesus said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate's response is saying, ha, you lost the privilege to speak into this conversation. This is my house. And if we're going to crush this guy, we're going to do it the Roman way. So get in line, priests. Why put that sign in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek so that the Jewish people, no matter what language they spoke or read, would know this is what happens when you step out of line. You have no king but Caesar. You have no God but the empire. Verses 23 and 24. Heap on the shame. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Now, at face value, the soldiers divide up Jesus' clothes, and they don't, they don't know that the whole time they're fulfilling Scripture. And some, some people might, might stop there and think, oh, this is saying that God's really in charge the entire time. After all, they're, they're fulfilling Scripture, and they don't know it. But, 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 but remember the scene. This is telling us that Jesus is naked. New Testament scholar Joel Green described the scene of a crucified victim in this way. He said, executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. Jesus is naked nailed to a piece of wood which is up against a back that is raw from scourging every single movement one of excruciating pain even that word excruciating literally means from the cross every breath was an agonizing labor and he died alone murdered by the state murdered by the religious leaders and ultimately by the weakness of his own body It makes it all the more amazing that he spoke at all on the cross. And yet he did. First, first to his mother. 
and to the unnamed disciple whom he loved. And he, he points them to each other. And he reveals to us that even in the midst of his unbearable agony, his love for his people is utterly unfazed. Even in the throes of death, his good news gathered family. But verses 28 to 30 complete this descent. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By, by night, and am not silent. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Roaring lions tearing their prey open, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My, my heart has melted like wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Jesus in his crucifixion is living out a psalm of David. A psalm of shame, a psalm of degradation. The worst that the kingdoms of the world have to offer. Rome, sin, and the devil intended Jesus' death to be a spectacle. A spectacle of their overwhelming power. A spectacle of them saying, look, behold the king of the Jews gasping on a cross, powerless before us. You see, brothers and sisters, the pain is not the point. As gruesome as it is. The shame and the degradation are the point. And that is what Jesus suffered in ways that we can only imagine. Do you realize how ridiculous the Christian faith is? That this is the central event of our faith? That when people meet us and when we tell them who our God is, that this is what we point them to? Do you begin to understand why Paul refers to the cross as a stumbling block to the Jews and, and, and as foolishness to the Gentiles? To, to a Jewish audience, Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 to 23 would ring in their minds that if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole or on a tree is under God's curse. Jesus died not only a shameful death, but a cursed one. But, but, but wasn't he and isn't he God? Yes. 
and he died a cursed death. To the Gentile and to most people today, it makes no sense that the center of any religious worship would be someone who would die in such a degrading way. Naked, bleeding, gasping for breath, not the recipe for a victor. That's the portrait of a loser, of a failed hope, of, of someone who went up against the kingdoms of the world and lost. But he didn't just ask for a drink to fulfill the scriptures. That's a big, that's a big reason, but, but there's also a practical reason. His mouth and his throat were dry. And he had one more thing to say before all was said and done. And what was it? It is finished. It is finished. And the attentive reader and listener will ask the Savior, well, what's finished, Lord, besides you? And I can't say this strongly enough because Jesus said it himself. The, the cross was the end of his mission. It was always the goal. It was the reason for his incarnation. It was the reason for his ministry. And, I, and I, we, we emphasized throughout this year when we started this sermon series back in last September that, that Christ's miracles were not just about power. They weren't just about love. They're also about resistance. That the Son of God, especially as John describes him, came into the world in order to save it, to free it from oppression. And yet that freedom would not be won with the weapons of the world. That freedom would not be won with overwhelming opposing violent force. It would be one on a cross. Sin and death probably high-fived when Jesus said it is finished because they thought that they had won. Because their lynching tree was erected to shame the son, to render him powerless, to render him a laughingstock, to, live, to, 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 to show the world that he's only fit to be mocked. But that was the Lord's plan all along. You see, brothers and sisters, it is in the cross that we see the love of God. It is in the cross that we see something that we could never have seen any other way. It's in the cross that we see that the triune God will do anything for God's people. The triune God will do anything for God's people. It is in the cross that we see God's love. Christ's suffering was not just mere suffering. It was a degrading suffering. It was a suffering that we are most afraid of, a suffering where Christ was supremely vulnerable, supremely isolated, and, and supremely just his body racked with pain. And all of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of your pains, Jesus felt each and every one of them acutely throughout his life and especially on the cross. But this also tells us this. That in your fear, in your anxiety, in your pain, you are not what has been done to you. Let me say that one more time. You are not what has been done to you. Some of you have been abused emotionally, sexually, physically, spiritually. And the crucifixion is a crucible of all of those abuses. Consider the emotional abuse of constant mockery. Consider the sexual abuse of being stripped naked and exposed to every passerby. Consider the physical abuse of scourging and of crucifixion itself. Consider the spiritual trauma rendered against Christ by the powers and principalities and the beast of empire. But in his bearing of all of that, he never ceased to be who he was. You are not what you have suffered no matter how tempting it may be to internalize that shame. 
This is what the author of Hebrews meant when he said that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Life may be agonizing, dear brother or dear sister, but we know that that the very Son of God suffered in solidarity with us. Jesus' it is finished are his last words of faith. His last words of belief in things not seen. By saying it is finished, he told his father, I've done all that has been asked of me. The rest is yours. And we're told that just a few short days later, the the father and the spirit did indeed vindicate the son because he got up with all power in his hands, never needing to believe in what he did not see again because the new age had begun. But where does that leave us? You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't take us past the cross. It points us back to it. You see, because it reminds us that the only way that we are raised is if we die. Until Jesus comes back, the resurrection tells us that the Christian way is the way of the cross. That the way of, the, that the way of faith is a way that leads us to the cross. That it's a way of care for the poor and the marginalized. It's a way of nonviolent yet aggressive resistance against the powers and principalities. It's the way of, for us, repentance. And it's a way that does not end in glory. Not in this life anyway, but it ends in shame and persecution for the sake of the one who bore those things on our behalf. That is probably the least attractive gospel presentation that you've probably ever heard, right? But that is precisely what the good news of the gospel is. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus and he inaugurated it by dying. You live, you and I live and continue to thrive in that kingdom by dying alongside him, by dying to our own sin, by dying to our selfishness and living unto the Lord and his blessings pour forth from the cross. But the only way you get it is if you go there with him in faith. And brothers and sisters, no matter how mature we get, no matter how much we learn, no matter how many degrees we amass, no matter how much money we go, how old we get, we're never going to move beyond the cross. And this doesn't mean that we walk around sad all the time. When Jesus said, it's finished, he wasn't, he wasn't admitting loss. He was declaring victory. And even when we suffer, we don't do so in loss. Whenever you and I suffer for the Lord, we can honestly say in it, the Lord is going to use this in my life and in the lives of those those I love to shape them and me into the image of the Son. If you're in Christ, this is always true when you suffer for the Lord's sake. When his glory is revealed, your glory will be revealed. We're currently in a in a country and a culture where Christianity is often associated with power grabs, with calls for dominance, with unrelenting self-protection and cover-ups. I know that it's frustrating to me. I know it's frustrating to a lot of y'all. I'm, I'm, it's been a source of pain for many of us. And it's because we, we, we've been in communities that see themselves as beyond the cross rather than in it. And regardless of what they may say or what we may say, if the cross is not at the center of our faith, we are practicing a different faith. 
To believe in Christ is to follow him. And to follow him is to go the way of the cross. And along the way, there are going to be voices that tell you that you're finished, that you won't make it, that the Lord won't sustain you, that he won't strengthen or provide for you. And in those moments, you have to remember, I have to remember, and we have to remind one another that the only it is finished that matters is the one that Jesus uttered on the cross. Because in that moment, he won. He defeated our sin, he defeated the world, and he defeated the devil. And he took everything that they had fully in an apocalyptic war that you and I are now invited into. But in union with Christ, we are no longer enslaved to the oppressor, but we will rule alongside the king. And this king is like no other king the world has ever seen. Because he is the only king who won his major battle by dying. And it's, and it's actually even deeper than that, because he didn't, just die, he didn't just die like a normal death. He died death on a cross. And the Christian life is a life that embraces the foolishness of that claim and lives in the power of the one who demonstrated its truth. And as I said last week, the, the Christian doesn't do it alone. See, when the, when, the, when the soldiers came to break the legs of the other two crucified men, they came to Jesus and they noticed that he'd already died and he'd been dead for a bit. And so they pierced him with a spear and blood and water came out. And whenever you see blood and water in the scriptures, the, the image is actually, uh, is, is actually a very common image. It's, it's the image of birth. And in Christ's death, there was indeed a birth, a birth of a people who would be joined together by the Holy Spirit and who would be empowered to live the cross-shaped life. And what is that? I want to give you one, one application. This week you're going to be faced with someone who it is inconvenient to love. I don't know if I have the gift of prophecy, but I can, I can guess... I can guess that this is, a, this is an opportunity that you will have, perhaps in an hour. It may cost you time, it may cost you money, it may cost you preference. Whatever it is, you're going to have an opportunity to set another's interest above your own. And in that moment when you're going back and forth in your mind, do I do, I do this? Ah, I don't know, it's a little bit of a sacrifice. Remember the cross. And I don't mean that in a guilt-trippy way. I mean it in the sense that, 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 that in those moments when it's hardest and most inconvenient to love, Christ's command to us is not to put the cross beam down at that point. It's to take it all the way to the hill. And Jesus Christ died for us. Died, <laughs> Paul says in Romans 5 that he died for us while we were sinners. And, like, and there's a point where we're like, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And then Paul goes on and says, while we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. Not for our lives to be more convenient, but for us to know what love really is. And so when your spouse gets on your nerves and you want to get back at them, don't put the cross beam down and let resentment take root. Take it all the way to the hill. When your friend, your child, whoever you come into contact with presents themselves as a person who's inconvenient to love, remember, you and I were the inconvenient ones to love. They cost the Son of God, we cost the Son of God his life. Don't put the crossbeam down. Take it all the way to the hill. He went to the cross for us so that we, by the Spirit, can go to our crosses for each other. For God's glory 
and for the good of our neighbors. This, dear brother and dear sister, is the Christian life. Let's pray.